Humans podcast. My name is Serena Simons. I am the senior producer on this show. And today our guest producer is Jason Milligan. Jason, do you want to say hi and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jason Milligan. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Who are you, Jason? Tell us a little bit about yourself. I live in California. I'm originally from Louisiana. I'm a filmmaker, outdoors person, also the host and creator of the Go Get Outside podcast, which encourages all people to get outside. You can tell that Jason is from the podcast universe you'll see in this episode, his interview style, just the way that he is able to communicate very effectively, very professionally. So yeah, Jason definitely had that that podcast voice going on. I don't know if you knew that. (laughs) I think what I do is I just try to ask somebody something that I know is going to make them talk for a long time so I can just listen (laughs) for three minutes and then it seems like I did a good job. You're telling all of our listeners the tricks of the trade. (laughs) It is a lot more work than that. Well, yeah, so tell us a little bit about who we're going to be listening to today. Yes, so we are going to be listening to Roz Helfand, who is a person that I've known for quite some time now. I think everyone kind of has this sort of person in their life, the person who, when someone asks, what does that person do? You don't know how to answer that question, but Mm. you know that this person knows everything there is to know about particular subjects and that anytime you have a question in regard to those subjects, that is the first person you should go to. And Roz Mm -hmm. is one of those people. So her website describes her as an expert in environmental and social policy strategy and advocacy with extensive cross-sectoral and multidisciplinary experience. She works as a freelance consultant with government and nonprofits to develop and implement inclusive and progressive local, national, and global policies. I think that's a fancy way of saying that she's a consultant for a variety of groups from nonprofits to government organizations, and that she helps build policy for any variety of subjects, primarily those in the environmental realm, but then also those in social justice Now she has her master's in environmental conservation leadership. So that was a thing that happened over the last year when Greg invited me to produce an episode of this podcast. The first person that came to mind was Roz because I knew she would be the person who could tell me what are the current topics that need to be discussed. And she introduced me to the Convention on Biological Diversity, which I know has been mentioned previously on this show. Are you familiar Mm -hmm. with that convention? I learned a lot from this episode, even though I had like a, you know, just sort of an introductory knowledge about it. I learned so much from Roz. Yeah. And so I didn't know much about that at all. Like I've heard of the Paris Climate Accords and various other topics, but I don't think I had heard of the Convention on Biological Diversity. And so this episode is very much going to be a discussion about this upcoming convention they have next May in 2021, where they're going to build out their plan for the next decade. And before we get into that, I wanted us to know a little bit about Ross, her history, what brought her to the topics that we're going to discuss. Because biological diversity and climate change are so intricately linked, we're going to talk a lot about climate change, and then we're going to talk 
in the second half all about the upcoming Convention on Biological Diversity Mm -hmm. and various challenges that they'll be facing at their convention next year, but then also just to try to make the things they decide upon happen. Well, I'm really excited to share this episode. Not only is Roz an expert, but she's an expert at articulating information in a way that's engaging and it's not too jargony, you know? And so she's sort of really, she's a great interpreter. She's a great interpreter of all this policy and all these things that need to happen, which I just found really fascinating. So I think our listeners will really enjoy this episode and um, excited for them to hear it. My name is Rosalind Helfand, and I'm an independent environmental and social policy advisor. When I was a kid, my parents bought a house out in Simi Valley. It's kind of this narrow valley north of the San Fernando Valley in California. But what's great about Simi Valley is that the hillsides around it are covered in this beautiful chaparral and lots of amazing native plants and wildlife covering the hills. So I grew up, I think by today's standards, I'd be a little bit of a wild child. Like my parents would just tell me when to be home at night and I would go out and just roam these hills regularly all day long. Then our city council became kind of real estate developer dominated. The hillsides were sold off for massive housing developments and they would literally just come in and start turning the hills into plateaus and then sticking in giant housing developments on those plateaus. And so I watched this this incredible natural playground where I grew up be turned into suburban development. I think that that was probably the motivator for my life because I became an activist early on. I got really involved in environmental issues and it really heightened my awareness of much broader range of environmental issues than just overdevelopment. And of course, because I loved the habitat, the the wilderness, the animals, I became really focused on conservation issues. And I ended up going to UC Santa Cruz and doing an environmental studies major. But I also got really involved in human rights issues too. And I think I just had a general focus on injustice because I watched the injustice of people with a lot of power like these real estate developers just coming in and getting exactly what they wanted and it was so hard to fight. So that's how I got involved in everything from women's rights to reproductive justice to indigenous rights and environmental justice issues in in the urban landscape. And that's become really powerful moving forward because I think now where conservation is going is a lot of people in the world of conservation are being forced to take a hard look at how we do conservation and what it means for issues of inequity in our society and what the connections should be between somebody who's suffering from pollution in the urban core and somebody who's fighting to save polar bears in the Arctic, because there are definitely some disconnects there. In order to help bridge those issues, in order to deal with really big things like climate change and just the loss of biodiversity, I decided to focus on conservation leadership. And that's when I ended up going to the University of Cambridge to do a master's so that I could really just laser focus on on how do we get everyone working together to solve some big issues in our world. In the time that I've known you, I've known you very much as someone who's involved in local politics. You went off to Cambridge for this program and things have shifted so that your focus is very largely on environmental. Tell us a little bit about why you joined 
that program and how it kind of helped shift your focus? When I studied environmental studies at UC Santa Cruz, my original intention was to be hyper-focused on environmental issues from the local level to the national to the global. And then I, I think I got really pulled into a lot of social justice issues. I started to have nightmares about climate change every night. So I would I would seriously wake up in a sweat in the morning. I was having horrible nightmares. You have about to tell it. us a little bit about what these dreams were like. What does a climate change nightmare look like? It's the anxiety dream of, of you can't stop it. It was running away type dreams where you're running and running and running, but you know something's going to get you anyway, no matter how hard you run. And it's, it's the kind of dream where you just wake up and you're like, and you're gasping for breath and, and and you're sweating, and then you're like, no, it's okay. There's still time. But is there still time? Because what's really clear is that we are running out of time to make really big change. The world has actually been working really hard on solutions to our environmental problems for the past several decades. A lot of people have put a lot of time and passion into conservation and trying to turn communities and governments around And the cumulative impact of that has not been enough. Like, we're still losing the battle. And so the question now is, what do you do to actually turn things around? How big does the change have to be so that you actually change your trajectory instead of trying to piecemeal all these little changes together that are somehow supposed to add up to saving the planet? Because that's not working. So I, I, I was having these cold sweats, and I had been pushing for a while in my local government work to integrate environmental issues into the social issue stuff. And, you know, I'd work with a human rights organization and they would be like, no, 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 we don't do environment. That's separate. I was trying really hard to get these people to see these issues as linked. And I kept coming up against a little bit of a wall. So I started looking around. I think I felt like I needed to go ahead and and have a a catalyst, something to help motivate me and, and propel me, something that would allow me to bring these communities that I'd been working with in LA for a long time with me into caring about the environmental problems, but also seeing how they could collaboratively work on the social and environmental. So I applied for this program and it's a one year master's. They kick your butt <laughs> completely. It's very difficult but and rigorous, but it's fantastic. And you had to move to another country. That's right. And I moved to England. I moved to Cambridge. So I got a little bit of British culture shock, but it was great because I went from urban LA living to bicycle riding just as my main mode of transportation, which was awesome to make that change. We had 17 people in our program, but sometimes they have a little over 20 people in the program. And you have to have experience working in conservation or policy or a related field, and you have to have at least several years of experience. And then they bring people together from all over the world. I was with a group of students, basically in a single classroom in this building called the David Attenborough Building in the (laughs) middle of Cambridge. And the David Attenborough Building is home to this organization called the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. In one building, all of these members of this initiative are together, and they include offices for like the IUCN, BirdLife International, Traffic, a lot of great organizations. It's you're kind of housed together with these orgs. The other members of my class included people 
people from Zambia and Zimbabwe and Nepal and Indonesia and India and Ecuador and Mexico and Costa Rica. They all had this incredible diverse experience. And then we worked together for a year and we had this nonstop parade of experts from different fields, from law to economics to really incredible conservation experience out in the field, all coming through and, and talking with us about different issues. And then we really workshopped solutions. So I created policy recommendations. My host was BirdLife International. The National Audubon Society is actually a member of the BirdLife International Global Network. And of course, you write your dissertation and you're actually graded on it. It's kind of, it's a very kind of environmental nerdy title. It was um, How to Achieve Transformative Change for the Future of Biodiversity and the Convention on Biological Diversity Post-2020 Framework. <laughs> Is there any dissertation on Earth that doesn't have some super intricate title like that? I don't know. It felt kind of ridiculous. But here's here are two things that are really critical to it. One is that the term transformative change is a really important term because it's growing in use worldwide whenever you talk about issues of the environment, about biodiversity and climate change. If you start to listen, you start to look at, look at news articles, you're going to start to see this term transformative change used again and again and again. Basically, it means kind of just what it sounds like. It's, it's change that completely transforms. It's a fundamental change. So the word achieving in my dissertation was also critical because I wanted to go from this idea of defining something straight to acting on something for our future. Everyone on Earth at this point has heard the term climate change. So if you want to take a moment to explain what it is and why we need to care about it. When we talk about climate change, we're referring to human activity. And I think that's really important to just say right up front. There can be a number of other reasons for changes in weather, changes to the temperature of the surface of Earth. But climate change is used to discuss human activity specifically. And some very prestigious organizations have chosen not to use the term climate change even. They'll use terms like global heating instead. It doesn't mean that you feel hot all the time everywhere. People who think about it really literally have been like, well, there's a giant snowstorm here. So, it, so this climate change stuff is bunk. The thing is, is that overall, the surface of Earth is heating up. And what happens is it changes patterns and cycles, patterns of weather, cycles of weather, whereas you may have had a number of low-level storms that would regularly come in every year in a certain part of the world. Now they're much larger storms and you more frequently get a, a giant flooding hurricane, for example. Or in California, it actually causes things to become more dry overall. So a lot of times people talk about climate change as an amplifier. It makes things worse or it amplifies certain patterns to the extent that it changes the environment and it becomes a problem for being able to live on this planet, to sustainably live. In California, everything has become much more parched. There's a level of dryness that's visible to the eye even. They've actually, and by they I mean 
actual ecological scientists or ecologists, sorry, have gone out and they've measured like soil moisture levels and things like that. And they found that overall California has dried out hugely. Then you create these conditions or you have these conditions for the kinds of fires that we've been getting. What are the causes of climate change? They are obviously fossil fuels. So when people operate our power plants, when we extract fossil fuels from the ground, all through the fossil fuel cycle, we are releasing emissions, whether that's CO2 or methane or other emissions. These gases help to create a blanket effect in the atmosphere, which leads to temperatures rising along the surface of the ground, which causes all of these weather changes and issues, which leads to crop devastation, which amplifies the issues that cause big wildfires, which can even cause the kinds of temperature changes that allow for mosquitoes, for example, to move into parts of the world where you didn't have heavy mosquito problems before. It introduces new diseases to the area. So diseases that were not a problem before can become a problem because of climate change. But it's not just fossil fuels either. It's agriculture, industrial levels of agriculture, how you disrupt the ground, how you change the habitat from natural habitat to farmed habitat. That can also lead to emissions or it can also reduce your ability to mitigate the effects of climate change. Maybe a forest helped to keep things cool before, but you don't have the forest anymore. And it's not just about sequestering carbon. It can also be all the other benefits of the forest are gone. And what we're finding is that there are knock-on effects. If you get rid of certain species in your environment, say wolves, for example, the species that help to kind of shape and keep your ecosystems healthy, those start to disappear. And that can also decrease your ability to mitigate climate change. Deforestation is a major driver of climate change. People's addiction to heavy meat diets is directly linked to deforestation. And as the demand for meat goes up, we're seeing the rates of deforestation increase. And it's not just for cattle farms, but it can be to plant giant soy crops, for example. And the soy is used for feed for animals. And then we're also seeing issues with ocean resiliency. The health of the ocean is incredibly important to mitigating climate change. As the oceans warm, they're becoming more acidic. Their ability to sequester carbon is going down. But then that, of course, makes the warming effects worse, which then harms the ocean more. The ecological cycles in the ocean are responsible for a large portion of oxygen production for the planet. Nobody really knows what will happen if we severely reduce the ability of the ocean to produce oxygen. And then, of course, we have icebergs melting because of the planet heating up. That's introducing a lot of fresh water to the oceans. It's changing the acidity levels in the oceans. So again, it's changing the environment of the ocean, the fresh water introduction, and that can be devastating to ocean ecosystems and then impact the ability of our oceans to mitigate climate change and the amount of carbon and methane that we've been introducing to the atmosphere. Basically, I think we should look at climate change as a really broad range of issues that are all linked to human activity. And it's not slow. It's kind of exponential, which means it can happen faster and faster and faster. And there's something called tipping points in climate change where you lose your ability to bounce back or resiliency. So for example, if too much of your ice caps melt, 
you may lose the ability for those ice caps to fully grow back. And then you may suffer from the long-term consequences of the growing loss of your ice caps because you hit a tipping point. So each time we hit one of those tipping points, our chances of being able to bounce back from the worst effects of climate change reduce. Acceleration becomes more likely than deceleration. Exactly. Sometimes people get this really downer attitude about climate change. They're like, yeah, what are we going to do? It's already really bad. That's just the way it is. You know, so why should we even try? Let's just keep living the way we can for now. And maybe in 100 years, it'll be apocalyptic conditions. But, you know, I don't have to see that. So who cares? Well, the thing is, is that is that if you look at climate change as a set of tipping points that you can avoid, then you can see where the hope is because you're like, okay, well, we did these things badly and now we have to suffer some long-term consequences, but we can still avoid these other tipping points and really think in terms of a much better future for humanity. That's where I tend to focus is, is how do we make the big changes so that we avoid those tipping points and we can focus on an improved future. So Ross kind of talks about tipping points Mm -hmm. in this episode. And I thought that that was really interesting because that is a hard topic when it comes to climate change. Like, I don't even know where I fall in believing where we fall currently on that scale. You know, are we past the point of no return? Are we at the brink of that? Can we still, you know, come back from the edge? Can we still fix things? Being an environmentalist, being so involved in conservation and all these topics can be really, really depressing, right? It can be really hard. I just wonder why you think that she's able to stay so positive and still believe that we haven't quite reached that tipping point and that we can still do real policy change and real action, change the course and the trajectory of the path that we're on right now. She is determined. I think you can hear it in her voice. You can hear it in her responses. I think even if we were on our very last tipping point and if we tipped (laughs) over it, there would be no way to come back and we'd be on the brink of complete destruction, I think she would still have hope that there's something that can be done. She's not a person that gives up and she's not a person that gives in. I think that's pretty much what you have to have at this point because it is really daunting, right? You can look and you can Mm -hmm. be like, well, how are we going to stop this? We've built this entire infrastructure to benefit humanity financially and changing an entire infrastructure that billions of people rely on is an enormously daunting task. But The other option is to not try at all and destroy Mm -hmm. the future of our children and grandchildren and the entire human race. You don't have a choice but to have some hope because you either give up and then please just get out of everyone else's way that wants to make a change. Mm -hmm. Or you say, no, I'm going to make a change and not give up because I don't have the option to give up. Like we, There's nothing else we can do. I mean, uh, just speaking for myself, I can't imagine dedicating my life to anything else. It, it's just for some people, it's the only thing we can do, right? We we just have to stay positive. We have to stay focused. We have to stay the course. And and like you said, yeah, like if you're not on board, get out of the way. Your people like Roz that are doing amazing work and still trying to see a future, not just for us, you know, as humans, but for every other species on this planet and protecting biodiversity. And uh, yeah, it is daunting, but someone's got to do it. One of the things she says that I, I think is 
is a really great point is she says that the tipping points kind of give her hope, you know, that they help her break it down. Like I said earlier, I have, you know, some history with the outdoors. And so it works the same there. If you're going to do some multi-week backpacking trip, you don't look at it as I have 200 miles to hike. You look at it as I have 10 miles to hike today. And then this task, which is daunting of hiking 200 miles becomes really achievable and attainable because you have milestones. And tipping points, I think, kind of work that way as well, because you can look and you can say, well, we can actively work on this right now. And as long as we don't let all these dominoes fall, as long as we stop some of them in the middle, we still have a chance of fighting this. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get back into this episode uh, where Roz kind of gives us some solutions on how we can achieve those goals. In the early 1990s, that's when the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity was formed. And the convention is, it's basically, it's a global treaty to protect biodiversity, to sustainably use biodiversity, and to protect and share the benefits of genetic resources that come from biodiversity. So an example of a genetic resource would be uh, medicines, pharmaceutical products that come from plants that you find in the jungle, for example. What's interesting is that originally the U.S. was a big proponent of forming this Convention on Biological Diversity, but the U.S. never ratified the convention. We are not party to this convention, most of the rest of the world signed on to this convention. The U.S. leaves a really big gap. If you're going to work on a global agreement to protect nature, then you really need the United States involved because the United States has one of the world's biggest impacts on on nature. Weirdly, most people have not heard of the Convention on Biological Diversity. This is a big problem because biological diversity is the other side of the coin with climate change. We know that if we don't have healthy ecosystems, we can't combat climate change. So a critical part of stemming the tide, so to speak, is, for example, having very, very large healthy forests. You can't have a healthy forest if it's not a biodiverse forest. If your forest is very homogenous with the tree species you have, with the animal and insect species that you have, it may not be providing all the ecosystem services that help the forest to thrive, sequester carbon, etc. So you have to ensure that you can have a forest, for example, that supports a huge diversity of species. Right now, for example, with all the burning of the Amazon that's been taking place on a growing scale, one thing that they're really afraid of is that there will be a tipping point. So we're back to to tipping points with the Amazon where it'll start to become grasslands and you'll just start to lose the forest bit by bit, even without people burning it down and turning it into farms. Mangroves are another example of that. When you destroy mangroves on the coasts or when you make the ecosystems inhospitable to mangroves, then you take away the ability of mangroves to buffer against floods from growing hurricanes. There are mitigation links, and there are also just ecosystem health links. The Convention on Biological Diversity is specifically meant to give this holistic view of all the things that you need to do to ensure that nature thrives 
and that it provides all of the services that allow humanity to thrive also. And this organization has existed for 27 years now, right? They formed in Since 1993. Yeah. yeah. So what have they done in those 27 years? What has been their contribution to help maintain biodiversity? So there have been a couple of strategic plans for the Convention on Biological Diversity that the nations that are party have signed on to. So far, those plans have not been considered hugely successful in terms of really turning things around overall for the future of biodiversity, which is why a lot of people are putting their hopes into what's called the post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework. So that's the agreement that's going to hopefully come about in May 2021 in China at the 15th Conference of Parties for the convention. That's the new strategy leading us through 2030 and then on to 2050. But here's something that has happened. Basically, the convention came up with a mechanism for countries to implement the strategies. And the mechanism is called National Biodiversity Strategies and Action Plans, or NBSAPs is the acronym. Each country was told, okay, what we want you to do is create a really detailed plan for how you're going to implement this strategy for protecting nature in your country. So the thing that's been really great about that is that countries have been asked to take a really close look at everything that they do and how they do it and what the impacts are on biodiversity and what they can do better to protect biodiversity. The other thing is that the treaty has led to a lot of collaboration. So a lot of countries are talking to each other about how to protect their biodiversity and what needs to happen. And that helps to raise accountability. There's a lot of potential there. It's created a lot of attention. It's led to a lot of partnerships. It doesn't have a lot of teeth as a treaty. There aren't a lot of consequences for not doing well. But we're hoping that as people start to see, like this pandemic has really, really brought to light how if you don't protect nature things can really go sideways. Like COVID-19 is an example of a disease that's linked to misuse of, of wildlife. Deforestation is very closely linked also to the emergence of disease and pandemics. So people are really starting to pay attention to that because they see it can destroy entire, like global economies can just go down the toilet if you don't protect nature. So I think that that is ramping up the pressure to figure out how to protect biodiversity. And you mentioned some of the successes, but you also said that both of these prior instances have kind of been considered failures because they have not attained their goals. Do you have a sense of why you think that is? And how do you think they can course correct for that in this third meeting? So the last strategic plan was agreed to in Japan, and it's called the Aichi targets. So it's a set of really wide ranging targets to protect nature, considered largely a failure. The goals were not met overall. Really, it comes down to how seriously governments take the convention. I don't know that the importance of protecting nature has infiltrated the various levels of government enough. So, for example, after the agreement happens, everybody goes home. It kind of sits in an environmental ministry in whatever country. And that environmental ministry is supposed to implement a bunch of stuff and report. But those goals don't necessarily permeate throughout the government. So they're not applied well for agriculture, for fishing, for forestry, for the economic 
department for education, it kind of gets siloed is the term for it when something's just kind of stuck in its own corner. I think some people feel that if you want to successfully protect nature, that every part of a government needs to internalize the importance of protecting nature and they need to see it as vital to their success. Right now, I think that there are a lot of barriers to that. A lot of nations are very dependent on fossil fuels for income. You know, even Canada has this reputation as wonderful and environmentally friendly, but they've got massive tar sands operations that are absolutely devastating. And they're fighting internally about building pipelines across the country. And yet they're supposed to be one of our more environmentally friendly nations. To me, what that says is that even some of our supposed role models have not fully internalized the utter importance of protecting your habitats at all costs. That's what we have to do in order to succeed. And I think that that goes outside of government. That goes across your different sectors, too. I don't know that the business sector has internalized how reliant we are on nature functioning well to have a stable economy. We are still continuing to mine at very unsustainable levels. So mining for raw materials, the materials that make the screens on our phones, for lithium batteries, for gold, for all those different things. It's, it's having a huge impact. And yet businesses themselves may have a whole sustainability section to their company policies. They'll make a big deal about all that they're doing to protect the planet. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not enough. There needs to be an integration of values. I think that we need to figure out how to make sure that the public really understands what the Convention on Biological Diversity is, why it's important, and we need the public to be telling their national governments and the United Nations that we want you to prioritize this, that this must happen because we understand this is vital to us having a future. Do you agree that one of the big hurdles the Convention on Biological Diversity and anyone trying to fight climate change has to deal with is a general consensus that caring for the environment is a punishment. It's a chore. I think this is a marketing issue, especially in the United States. We've been marketed this idea of what individual freedom means. We think that individual freedom means the ability to do whatever you want um, without a sense of responsibility towards the health of your greater society. Let's use the example of recycling. I had friends confess to me that they feel incredibly guilty if if they feel like they're not recycling or they've recycled the wrong thing. Well, recycling is a marketing ploy. The idea of it was actually developed in order to support being able to create as much waste as you like. Let people think that you can recycle your way out of it. It puts all the shame of not having a sustainable society onto individuals instead of onto, honestly, the entities that have the most power, the corporations that are producing these materials. And they have attorneys to fight any regulations or policies that they don't like. They have the ability to spend loads of time lobbying government. And yet here we are feeling guilty because we're not sorting things properly. It's pretty much been proven to be a futile effort. So we know that you know, China started rejecting recycling waste from the U.S. It's being rejected all over the world. Plastic is mounting up. And yet at the same time, these 
big corporations in the U.S. with the help of the facilitation of the American Chemistry Council are looking to build brand new giant plastics plants that are tied to the fracking industry across the South and the Midwest, which will be devastating not just to the environment, but to the health of people who live near these plants and, of course, downcycle to communities that become filled with waste. They're continuing to push this idea that, oh, we just need to improve our recycling. What would actually be better is to have a real commitment to a transformative change, we'll get back to that, (laughs) where we actually go to a zero-waste society. And I see that as something exciting. That's not a chore, and that's not shaming people. That should be a constructive process that engages people at every level. And this is why I'm working, I went from working at the local level to the global is because I see the local and the global is so intricately connected. People at the local level should care about the global plastic impact and they should be able to participate locally on what will ultimately be a global solution for becoming a zero waste society. In just a pretty short period of time, we've gone from being a pretty low waste society to everything being disposable. We can turn that around and get used to a new system and be pretty happy, happy and healthy. And it doesn't have to be something that's a chore or onerous at all. So we've talked about a number of things, and I want to bring us back to Convention on Biological Diversity. Uh, I want you to tell us about their upcoming conference. Tell us about what they're facing and what the concerns are on whether or not they're successful. Money is going to be a key issue. So the next plan, this post-2020 global biodiversity framework, you need money to help get it implemented everywhere. Not all governments are equally funded or equally wealthy, obviously. They need support in implementing the strategic plan. I think we also need to make sure that there are real solutions. So for example, we don't know what's going to be in this final plan yet. But say that part of the plan is asking countries to protect more of their land and sea from habitat degradation. So there's this idea out there that everyone should be seeking to protect 30% of land and sea by 2030. It's called the 30 by 30 plan. So if that goes forward, there's the question of which land is protected? Is it your most biodiverse land or is it your least biodiverse land? Or are people really following it or are they cheating because housing crises are so bad that they're like, sorry, we just can't do this. And they build houses on the land anyway. And then there's the equity and justice issue. Right now, things are are pretty hierarchical around the world, very top down when it comes to implementing policy. We're seeing that if we don't have participation from cities, from local communities, from indigenous peoples, that we may not be able to successfully implement a biodiversity framework. We really have to have these local and indigenous voices at the table. And we really need to address issues of of social justice and environmental justice and economic inequity planet-wide everywhere. So there's, there's a pretty close link between issues of poverty and being able to really successfully implement your environmental policies. If we can raise quality of life for people and address these these social issues, we are more likely to succeed with our plans to protect the future of nature. Our solutions for protecting nature have to benefit everyone at all economic levels. 
there's something that I'm working on specifically. There's a status that you can have with a convention called observer. So if you're an observer, you get to attend meetings, you get to um, contribute input to what's taking place with the convention. There's a huge pre-process that's been taking place for several years before COP15 that's coming up in May to help develop what's going to go into this new biodiversity framework. Observers can participate in that process, and that can include government, private sector, NGOs, like local and indigenous peoples can all participate as observers. The U.S. federal government is an observer to the convention, but what I would like to see happen is for the state of California to become an observer. And the signal that it will send is that a major economic and environmental powerhouse, a state and a government that's really looked to as a model for different kinds of environmental policies worldwide, is saying, we're throwing our hat in with the Convention on Biological Diversity because we recognize how important this is for our future. So if California can do that, I think it would make a really huge difference. So with the changing administration here in the U.S., does it seem like there's a possibility of the U.S. becoming involved in this convention, or does that still seem completely off the table? I think the last time that the U.S. tried to get ourselves to ratify the convention was during the Clinton administration. So I don't know that a change in administration will help unless you have a major changeover in the U.S. Senate. What I think would make the difference is if California says we're participating in the convention as an observer, other states look at what California is doing. And if another government in the U.S., you know, New York or Massachusetts or Hawaii or whatever government it is says, wow, you know, that's interesting what you're doing. And if you get more and more states in the U.S. becoming observers to the convention, I think that's what could help to turn right. things Right, so then out. you get that domino effect. Yeah, exactly. The convention is facing a lot of issues, right? The U.S. isn't really involved. That's one issue. There's a global pandemic that affects communication, mm-hmm. has affected allocation of resources and economies. In the previous strategy, right, there were 20 targets, and I believe six were partially met and none were fully met. You did your research. (laughs) So there is a lot to look back on, right, and see where there has been failure and where there are new Mm -hmm. challenges that there weren't before. So what makes you hopeful that those involved have learned their lessons from 10 years ago and and are going to come up with a strategy that is feasible? What makes me most hopeful is that people are talking more in terms of how we collaborate with each other, sharing lessons of what's working and what's not working. The pandemic makes me hopeful because the pandemic is horrific. As I said before, it's such a strong illustration of why we need to succeed. I'm very hopeful that with this incredible illustration, it will help to put the pressure on governments to pay attention to the Convention on Biological Diversity, prioritize it, and look to succeed with it. I think that sometimes it's hard for them to give equal attention to every single international agreement that they're signed on to. So they may choose to put the Paris Climate Agreement before the Convention on Biological Diversity, but we need equal attention for the Convention on Biological Diversity. So maybe this will help 
governments to say, okay, you know, this is two halves of the same coin and we're going to equally dedicate attention to tackle our overall environmental issues worldwide. I think there is also growing pressure on industry to change. I'm not sure, though, how if it will change fast enough. So I think I'm a little bit concerned about that still. Um, And I'm talking about like the fossil fuel industry, for example, or mining industries. They're going to have to change pretty quickly to meet the level of crisis that we're experiencing. Part of the push that's happening for this change is called this idea of a global green recovery. So this is another project that I'm working on. Green recovery is this idea that we bounce back from COVID-19 and the economic downturn that's that it's created in a way that is environmentally sustainable and is not only sustainable, but, but pushes forward our environmental objectives. So for example, when you bounce back from COVID-19, you don't do that by investing more heavily in fossil fuels. You do it by putting more of your money into renewable energy development and to other measures that would kind of help to stop some of the conditions that led us to a pandemic in the first place. I think that this pressure for a global green recovery may also help to push governments to to take the Convention on Biological Diversity and this new global biodiversity framework very seriously. What I mean by taking it seriously is, are your actions in implementing your strategy transformative? Is it at the top of your priorities? At the end of the day, will your efforts to implement this strategy actually change the trajectory that we're on in the world? I I love that Roz kind of puts it back into the hands of the listener and the hands of the people. With this past administration, we have had a lot of rollbacks to environmental policy. The Convention on Biological Diversity hasn't been something that we have been attending. And so she kind of says, you know, call your representative. There are other alternatives to that. We can have um, the state of California attend, which I was like, no way. That's so cool. You know, there's just, there's alternatives that we can still, we can still be present. We can still let people know that there are people out there that care. And I I just thought that that was really powerful. Like even if the particular administration or our government is telling us one thing and, and maybe we don't agree with it, there's still people that are out there fighting and we still have a lot of power as individuals. And I think it's kind of the most important point when it comes down to it, right? Because you can either sit idly by and trust that your representatives or your leaders are going to find all the solutions and find the answers for you. That's not really realistic. Their primary purpose is to do the bidding of the people. And so if the people don't become part of it, if they don't cooperate, if they don't contribute their time, it doesn't make a difference. Becoming informed and then engaged in the general populace is what will make a difference. We can elect the right people. That's certainly going to help. But really, it's going to be all of us figuring out what we can do that is going to make that change. It takes all mm-hmm. 7 billion of us. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm definitely reinvigorated and inspired after listening to Roz and um, your conversation, Jason. So thank you again for this episode. Yeah. And thanks and, for having me. Yeah. And looking forward to um, 
you know, hopefully more, more podcasts that you'll produce for us. And also we'll include every, everything mentioned in this episode in our show notes page. And also Jason will include some links to his podcasts too. Yeah. And I would encourage everyone to check in as the year goes on, 2021 goes on and see what's going on with that convention on biological diversity, because it's success is everyone's success. If you enjoyed this conversation with Roz and would like to learn more, then head on over to wildlensinc.org and click on through to the Earth to Humans podcast. There will be links for everything we talked about in this episode and photographs of Roz herself in action. And if you would like to hear more of this conversation with Roz, then head on over to patreon.com slash wildlenscollective where for a small amount, you can become a patron to this podcast and access an extended version of this episode and previous episodes. I'd like to thank Rosalind Helfand for coming on this show and sharing her knowledge with us. I want to thank Serena Simons for co-producing this episode and all of Wildlands Collective for what they are doing to help protect our planet. And I would like to thank all of you who are listening and who are attempting to do something to help our planet as well. And if you would like to keep up with me, then head on over to GoGetOutside.com and there you can find over 100 episodes of my podcast along with videos that hopefully inspire you to get outdoors. So once again, this is your host for this episode, Jason Milligan, signing off. And thanks to all of you for listening. Humans. Humans.